Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Chapter 21 Hermione's Secret Shocking business. Shocking. Miracle none of them died. Never heard the like. By thunder it was lucky you were there, Snape. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Everyone, before we start today's episode for real, I just want to let you know that our bean conversation is going to be Matt explaining time travel to me. I think we're going to figure it out together, Vanessa. <laughs> I don't know. You and I have some questions, and we are confident we will get it solved by the end of a seven-minute bean conversation. I'm very disappointed that you don't have an answer. <laughs> So go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter sacred text if you would like to hear that conversation and more. And if not, we're grateful you're here. Vanessa, this week you have a story to tell us about anticipation, which I have been waiting and waiting to hear. <laughs> so Matt, I have two different modes for anticipation. And the modes are avoidance due to dread. And the other mode is anxiety and over-preparation. And so I'm going to tell two short stories to demonstrate these two modes. So mode one, the dread and avoidance, is I had a very lovely thing happen to me a handful of years ago, and I was being given an award, which is so nice. And I hated everything about the idea of like publicly being given an award. So I read the email that I got it and I was like, that's nice. And I read that there was a ceremony. And so I like blocked the day on my calendar 
And then I just stopped reading the emails about it because I was like, it's going to come in a couple of months and I will just deal with it then. And so the night before, I was like, oh, I should probably read these emails so I like know what to wear. And it turned out that families were invited and I should have invited my mom. And it turned out that I had a speech to give. And it turned out all of these things that I had to panic about with like 16 hours to go. And my mom was pretty mad at me. (laughs) And you had to help me write a very last minute speech. So that's mode one. Like, I don't like what's coming. I know it's coming. And so I'm not going to prepare until the last second. So mode two is I'm excited about what's coming. And so I overprepare from a place of anxiety. So my mom is visiting right now. And I love my mom. And so I love when she comes to visit me. And so for the last several weeks, I have made a meal plan, a shopping list plan, a laundry plan, blocked several hours so I could scrub the whole house from top to bottom plan. Like, You would think an army was invading my house with the amount of like preparation and anxiety I felt about my mom coming to visit. And so my question for you today, Matt, and for this chapter, which is really a chapter about waiting, is, is anticipation ever fun? Is it ever a good thing? Because to me, it's either dread or anxiety. And I'm curious if it's anything else for anyone else. Thanks for those stories, Vanessa. I would like to answer your question, but I'm going to not answer it right now. (laughs) Because I'm going to say, like, I'm not sure the first case is anticipation. And I'm saying that for etymological reasons, Vanessa. Oh. So the etymology of anticipation, anti means before. The cipation part actually comes from a Latin word, capere, which means to seize and grasp hold of. So the words like capacity and capable are from the same word. And so anticipation means like to, to grasp something beforehand. And it seems to me that like in the second case, when the army is invading your house, or maybe it's your mom, that's a case where like you are anticipating what your mom is going to need, want, what will make her comfortable, what she said in the past, done in the past. And so you're taking hold of those things and actually doing all that stuff beforehand. Whereas in the former case, it sounds like you are refusing to grasp it. <laughs> like you do, Because you don't like this news, you're actually just not going to take hold of it at all until 16 hours before the ceremony, when it's too late to take hold of some of the things you might have wanted to take hold of. I think the, the affective question is still interesting, which is when we do take grasp of something beforehand, How do we navigate the narrow space between dread of its arrival and the anxiety of over-preparing for its arrival? There is one moment in the chapter in particular that I think the children actually embody a healthy kind of anticipation where they are waiting to act next and they are just sitting on the floor of Hagrid's hut chatting is a very sweet moment of a pause before a moment that I'm excited to dig into. That's interesting because I was just going to say that I think the thing that would least help my healthy anticipation would be for me to know exactly what was going to happen to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Like before it happened, because that would just then the dread or the over preparation would just become all consuming. But I think that means that we are ready to talk about this chapter, which means that we need to do some 30 second recaps. Okay, Matt, I can't wait for yours. I can't wait to be done. (laughs) And I only have to wait. Uh, Slightly over 30 seconds, which is the good news. (laughs) On your mark. 
Get set, go. So Harry wakes up and he's groggy and Snape is a hero and Fudge is like, this is great. And Dumbledore shows up and says, like, maybe it's not great, but uh, but I believe you. And then we'll meet up to execute uh, Sirius in a minute. And he's like, by the way, uh, go back a few hours, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. Figure it out yourselves. And they go back a few hours and they have to plan everything out. And then they get Buckbeak away and it's fine. And then they, they the Patronus comes out and all the Dementors go away. And then they fly Buckbeak up to the tower and grab Sirius and they're off and the day is saved. It's almost like you've been doing this for a year and a half. I'm, I'm that getting, was so good. I'm getting much, much less anxious. Yeah, about it. I like don't even think You're about no it. You're no longer anticipating. I don't even think about it until like the night before. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think about it until it wakes me at four in the morning. That's right. I don't even think about it until I can't fall asleep the night before. I have to do it. So it's <laughs> it's really getting a lot better. Proud of you. Vanessa, are you ready? I am. On your mark. Get set. Go. So I'm Hermione, and my powers that I've been using for the silly reason of studying are finally going to be useful. So I take my time turner, and I wrap it around Harry, and I'm like, don't worry, I've got it. No, Harry, you can't mess with time. You can't see yourself. Follow me down. I'm in charge. What are we going to do? we got to let go of Buttbeak. No, Harry, we can't kill Peter Pettigrew. That would mess with everything. You would try to kill yourself. Let's lead Buckbeak into the forest. Let's watch the whole McNair thing figure itself out. Let's almost um, watch ourselves almost die of Dementors again, and then let's go up and rescue serious i was hermione great job vanessa you know who doesn't over prepare for this chapter me dumbledore <laughs> <laughs> he comes down and the the children tell him that sirius is innocent and he believes them and there aren't many solutions available but the only thing he does to facilitate some kind of heroic rescue is like make a cryptic comment about turning the time turner three clicks. And then no other details. Now, I know time is short. I know he has to get upstairs before Sirius is... Executed is maybe too gentle a word. I want to talk about that too. But before Sirius's soul is is ripped from him and consumed by a Dementor. But like, he doesn't have 10 seconds to give a little bit more instruction. I feel like Dumbledore is anticipating that things will turn out for the good. But this is bad anticipation. Like, he, like I mean... it. I think it's effectively the kind of anticipation we want. He seems very unconcerned. He is neither dreading nor over-preparing. He seems emotionally just okay with the amount of preparation he's put in. But I'm with you. I feel like in this situation, I want a little bit more dread and or preparation from him <laughs> than just like three clicks, kids. See you in a few. I, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, so I definitely think he should be giving more information. I think that, you know, the kids are in the hospital wing. They really don't know what's going on. I think it's really weird that he speaks in riddles of like, maybe two lives can be saved tonight. That's right. Like, it's almost barely more syllables to say, I think Buckbeak and Sirius can be saved tonight. <laughs> like, right. It doesn't save you. I know, understand time is short, but it doesn't save you any time to instead say, Go grab Buckbeak. <laughs> Go get Buckbeak <laughs> right. and fly to... Fly to the tower. Yes. Fly to see it, right? Like, right. There, yeah, there's absolutely no reason for him to speak in a riddle. But I do think that Dumbledore is exhibiting a kind of anticipation that I want to harness in my life, which is I'm going to do everything I can to prepare, and then it's out of my hands. And, like, I'm not going to really think about it. Can I add to that defense of Dumbledore a little bit? Isn't it also possible that the Dumbledore we have in this chapter 
has already been to Haggard's hut and somehow discerned that the children were hiding in the back and freeing Buckbeak and therefore already knows that the children have gone back in time and are releasing Buckbeak, right? So, yes, I think that is a lovely point. I think plot-wise I intuitively understood that, but I did not understand that on the level of that maybe that's why he's so calm. I still think that he should give them more information. There's still no reason not to give them the information. I'm I'm coming around on this to a totally different perspective because he also has Harry and Hermione and Sirius alive in the tower after the Dementors attack. So he actually knows that this is all going to work out to this point, right? He knows when he's talking to them that Buckbeak is going to be free and the Dementors are going to be shooed away by somebody. So he knows that they're going to figure it out, right? Sure. So then why does he go down at all and intervene at all? Right? Like... Yeah. He, yeah that's, okay. Fair enough. Like, he, he still has to give them the time-turner clue. But you're right. Maybe they would have figured out... Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, they would have figured it out. Oh, oh, boy. This is getting hairy. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that's true in general, right? Like, I know that we're getting into, like, time-trippy conversations here. But I think that that's true, like, about parenting, right? Sometimes I'll really overanalyze what I think is maybe not a great parenting moment that I had with one of the kids. And I'll be like, I should have said this. I should have done this. Oh, no. Is this going to be the thing that means that they need 10 years of therapy instead of nine years of therapy? And then, like, in other days, I'm like, they know I love them and they're fine, right? Like, the only information that they actually need from me is that I love them and I'm always here for them. And, like, that That is a net that they always have. And like, it's possible that that's right. Like that Dumbledore is like, I've given them all the tools they need, right? Like they have an education and a wand and each other and Hermione has the time turner. And like, it is actually possible, I guess, in theory that Hermione and Harry could have been sitting in the hospital wing and been like, oh my God, we have to do something. And Hermione could say, Harry, I have a time turner. And I believe that Hermione is more capable of keeping a secret than almost anyone I know. I mean, the title of this chapter, the loop in the secret, like this is a girl who can really hold something close to the chest. But I also think that she's someone who knows when to break that. And I can imagine when Sirius's and Buckbeak's lives hang in the balance that to use your definition of anticipation, she would grab that and be like, nope, we got to get involved here. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think Hermione has also shown a tendency to sometimes in the moment of crisis not be able to grasp the thing right in front of her. Remember in book one, when she's in the devil's snare, she forgets that she has the capacity to free herself from it. I cannot believe you are throwing that in her face. I'm not throwing it in her she face. She was 11. But I think maybe this is this is in terms of a rationale for why Dumbledore would say only so much and no more. Right? Like, right. just remind her that she has a time turner and that's all I need to say. Just like Ron just needed to remind Hermione that she's a witch. And that was all he needed to say. Or basically, the thing that Dumbledore does is give her permission to tell oh, the secret. Yes. yes. And to use it in this non-sanctioned way. Right. It's like the headmaster has just said to her, this is an exception. You can use the time turner now. Yes. And that is why he only otherwise speaks in riddles. He's like, I, and maybe he's even like, I don't know how you do it. Right? Like, oh, you're right. I can't give you more advice, but I can tell you, I 
still think yeah, he could have right. said the words Buckbeak and Sirius. I think he but... could have said some names. You're right. <laughs> but I think maybe you're right, too, which is like he's not sure how they did it. He just knows already that they did. And so he just. And that the one thing that could get in the way is Hermione not feeling empowered. Right. And since they seem confused, he says, here's the thing. Now go do whatever you already did. Yeah. Speaking uh, of doing what you already did, this is a complicated chapter to think about with respect to anticipation, because one of the things that happens is throughout the chapter. I mean, we can just go from this moment in the chapter the the, the children go three turns of the time turner back in time, which is three hours. And then they both hide from themselves and have to watch themselves go through the events that they have just fairly <laughs> yeah. traumatically lived through, right? So they have to kind of watch themselves survive all these very harrowing and life-threatening events. And so it's this practice in anticipation. They know exactly what's coming. And the success or failure of their rescue attempt, which we already know has succeeded since they were there to be told by Dumbledore to go attempt it, depends upon them anticipating what's going to happen and then preventing the right things at the right time and not preventing other things at at the mm-hmm. right time yeah yeah it's funny it's a chapter about waiting right which is another form of anticipation well don't you think that anticipation does does describe something a little bit more precise than waiting like it's yeah it's waiting plus anxiety yeah, I think that's what that's what your stories tell us. <laughs> you asked if there's a version that's not <laughs> plus anxiety, right? Yeah. I think anticipation is a form of waiting, but not every form of waiting is anticipation. I think anticipation yes, I think that's includes right. a kind of like a more certainty, more confidence. Whether that confidence is well-placed or not, or that certainty is well-placed, I think it includes more, right? Don't you think? Or maybe not. Maybe this is wrong. No, I mean, here's a moment that I think we can look really closely at and try to figure out if it's waiting or anticipation. Great. There's this moment before Harry goes and casts the Patronus and Buckbeak, Hermione, and Harry are in Hagrid's hut. And the text says, Harry was looking out of the window. It was much harder to see what was going on from here. Buckbeak seemed happy. He lay down in front of the fire and folded his wings, right? Like, Buckbeak is ready for a good nap. Relatable Buckbeak. And, like, Hermione is just, like, sitting there, too, right? Scratching Fang's ears. And then Harry says, I think I'd better go outside again. And Hermione looked up, and her expression was suspicious. I'm not going to try to interfere, but if we don't see what's going on, how do we know when it's going to be time to rescue Sirius? And Hermione says, I'll wait here with Buckbeak. And this moment of quiet, right, like quiet before the storm, like there's nothing that they can do to prepare in that moment. All they have to do is wait for the right amount of time to elapse. And Harry is like, well, I, I got to go watch in order to know the right time, yeah. right? But Hermione's even skeptical of that. Like this moment of pause, is this waiting or anticipation? Boy, that's a good question. How about... How about this? Let's try this on for size. Hermione yes. is waiting and Harry is anticipating. And Buckbeak is napping. And Buckbeak is napping, right? I mean, I think that's the way, I mean, I, I, that maybe seems obvious because I think the way you set up the example really leads us to that. And I think you described the scene really yeah. well. Like Hermione is not trying to grasp the situation beforehand. She is kind of waiting for it to come to her. Like when Harry returns, then we'll move on. Whereas Harry, to use this etymological route, Harry is actually trying to go take hold of something that he knows is coming to try to to impact it or try to take some action, right? 
Yeah. And so his is anticipation. He's like, okay, I know it's coming and I have a responsibility to take some action in the midst of what's coming. And so I need to move forward, do some of the preparatory stuff that you were, that you're, yeah. that one of your stories spoke to, right? Whereas Hermione <laughs> is more like, I don't have a role here. I'm just sitting tight until it's done, which is more like waiting. Yeah. I think that this moment and your analysis of it is really helpful because it speaks to me of the moments where anticipation rather than waiting is actually destructive or, right. Or we really want to anticipate, even though the only thing we can do is wait. I've had to sit with families while they were waiting for test results, right. In hospitals. And there's this desire to keep doing things. Or I can talk about myself when, you know, we were waiting for test results from my, my dad from a spinal tap. And I was like, okay, what do we do? Let me adjust your pillow. Let's watch a movie. Are you hungry? And like, I would walk out to the grocery store and everybody was like, I'm not hungry. And like, that is a discomfort with the fact that all we can do is wait. And therefore it's this attempt to grab the situation. Yeah. And there's actually something really wise in both Harry and Hermione, right? Hermione is like, okay, if Harry is anticipating, all I can do is wait. She could go with him, but it wasn't going to help. Yeah. And so there's a wisdom in knowing when you actually can anticipate and when you just need to wait. Yeah. And I think that actually your kind of elaboration and illustration from your own personal experience maybe also gives us a window into when and how anxiety arises around around situations of anticipation, right? Because I you know, you said we could call waiting rooms anticipation rooms. And I think some waiting rooms you could, right? But I I immediately thought to very similar situations where like I'm at the doctor and I'm waiting for my annual physical. That feels like waiting, right? Because what I'm expecting is to go through something that I've been through before, which is not very impactful or eventful, right? Right. But I've also sat in very similar medical waiting rooms where we know that what we're going to hear about are the results of a test. Right. What we don't know is whether the results are positive or negative, good or bad. We just know that there are results, right? And then that's that feels like anticipation, not waiting. Because it's not like I'm waiting for something that I have to go through and it's not going to impact me so much. Anticipation, maybe the difference between anticipation and waiting is, are the stakes, right? Like the stakes are very high, maybe good, maybe bad. Maybe you don't know good or bad. But you know what? I am back to your definition. I think it, anticipation is waiting plus anxiety. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> I think that's right. Because, because the certainty you have may not be exactly what happens. In this chapter, it's obviously they know exactly what happens. Right. And so they're anticipating these moments, but it's 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 anxiety about the stakes of what is going to happen, even if you don't know whether it's good or bad. Yeah, that's a great definition, actually. Well, I think actually I want us to meet in the middle okay? because I think it's the anticipation if it's waiting plus anxiety plus action. And so okay. Hermione might be waiting and anxious, but it's not anticipation if she's not refilling things water bowl because maybe Hagrid won't be back in a while. And right, like in what, like fluffing pillows and scrubbing the counter. If she's able to somehow get into a state where it's the only thing I can do is wait, right? Anticipation is about somehow believing that you can still change what is going to happen. And waiting is an acceptance that you can't. So again, it's the anxiety. But I think it's the anxiety and therefore the trying to do something. And so I think that if we're picturing Hermione sitting on the floor and keeping company with Buckbeak and Fang, 
that there's a brilliance to that waiting. Because if you're anticipating and thinking about what you can do, you're not in the moment. And like, this might be the last moment that she gets to spend with Buckbeak. And because she's able to get herself to a place of waiting, Hmm. she can be present and be scratching Fang's ear. I'm just thinking about if I, rather than anticipating and trying to run around and like get my dad his favorite food from Trader Joe's, I could have just like been there with my dad, right? And that wouldn't have meant less anxiety. It would have just been an acceptance that there is nothing I can do. Yeah, that makes sense to me as well. But then it might be that the waiting becomes the action that the anticipation takes, right? Like, because Hermione anticipates that this is going to be the last moment with Buckbeak, the action she chooses to take is to be present, right? And that really is the challenge that Harry has throughout this chapter, because he really impulsively wants to take other actions. He wants to go grab the invisibility cloak to foil Snape. He wants to go kill Peter in order to to make this whole thing go away, right? He wants to take all these other actions, which are not the actions that are actually helpful in the moment. And it's Hermione, brilliant Hermione, again, who is the one that who restrains him and takes him to the proper sort of anticipatory actions, which for him throughout much of the chapter is also waiting, right? Like, this is not the moment. I know you wish you could do that. You can't do that. This is not the moment. No, this isn't the moment either, Harry. I know you wish you could. You can't do that. And even when he goes out now, in the scene we're describing... He has to explain to her, no, I'm not going to intervene until I'm meant to intervene. I am going to wait, right? Because I'm anticipating, I'm going to wait the right amount of time so that I take the right action. And to me, that sounds like, I mean, to go back to your stories and maybe our own lives, right? In the first case, the story of the award you received at HDS, you waited too long and didn't take the action at the right moment, right? You or if Harry had just stayed in the hut until after the Dementors came and sucked Sirius's soul away. Actually, you did really well, mm-hmm. so that you, you were right in time. Mm-hmm. And in the other story, right, you're Harry running out of the hut too early and taking actions too soon, too many actions that cause yourself stress. Whereas what we want to be is Hermione in the hut, who just sits there and acknowledges that although my anxiety wants me both to act too soon and too late, I'm going to anticipate appropriately and act at the right time. Okay, you convinced me I was right. It's a lot easier to act at the right time when you know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> I have to, <laughs> yes. to be honest. That's... Well, but what's so interesting is that Harry still almost messes it up because of what he's anticipating. So Harry goes to the lake like he told Hermione he would in order to know when to intervene and grab Sirius. And the thing that he thinks is going to happen and the moment that he thinks he's going to be able to grab Sirius is after his father, after James casts a Patronus. And Hermione doesn't believe, Harry, that that's what happened. Maybe that's why she's hanging out in the hut. But Harry, it somehow clicks for him. And he doesn't seem sad about it, which I find so interesting, Hmm. right? He's not like, oh, I thought I was going to meet my dad and I'm not. This like realization sort of calmly comes over him of, oh, it's not going to be my dad. It's going to be me. Mm-hmm. And then he casts the Patronus. And my favorite moment in book three is this moment that he has with Hermione. Hermione is like, how did you do that? And Harry says, I knew I could do it because I had done it. 
And I think that that is such a productive way for us to talk to ourselves, right? Like I know I can teach myself how to do this tough recipe, not even necessarily because I have done tough recipes before, but because I've learned new things before. I used to not know how to read and now I know how to read, right? Like I have taught myself how to do things before or the world has taught me how to do things before. And I love that that is kind of all the inspiration Harry needs is I knew I could do it because I've done it. I just, I, I hope that that is something that people sort of recite to themselves whenever they're scared, right? If you're scared to ask out someone, remind yourself that you once asked someone to be your friend, like you weren't always just friends with the people you're friends with, right? There was a moment where you were brave before and yeah, I just think it's so wise of Harry that he lets go of the anticipation of seeing his father and is like, oh, it's me. And that is the moment that he steps into action. You know, just as a reader, I was anticipating this moment in the book because I haven't read this since I read it to Cammy, which is, you know, probably four or five years ago. In my memory of the scene, he cast the Patronus just out of desperation from across the lake and then realizes, oh, it was me. He doesn't realize first and do it, right? So I was kind of disappointed because I wanted him to, the way I remember the story was that was that he learned that he was the one by doing it rather than deciding, oh, I am the one and then having the confidence beforehand to do it, right? Because I think it's really dramatic to like to not believe in yourself until circumstances forces you to take action and then you do it and you're like, oh, oh, I guess I was the one. It wasn't my dad. It was me that did it all along. And if I had thought through it beforehand, I might not have believed in myself. And And it was only because kind of out of desperation in the moment that I acted without self-consciousness and was able to do the thing that I couldn't do before. And that, that was the way I remembered it. And so they, I was really thinking about this moment where he has this realization that it wasn't his father. And it's that realization and realizing that he'd already done before what he needed to do that allowed him to do it. That was a really interesting moment for me. And it hadn't occurred to me until you said just now that like he doesn't feel any sadness in that moment. I feel like there's something we need to do with that point. I mean, maybe it's just the urgency of the moment. He knows he needs to act so swiftly that he doesn't have time to feel the grief of not seeing his father. But there is, I don't know, there's something about this moment that just, I can't tell if I find it really moving or really unsatisfying. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I I find it strange that he's not sad about not seeing his dad. I also think... He woke up in the hospital wing and did not think that he was ever going to see his dad again. Like, he thought it was a glimpse. And I think he even had doubts about the glimpse, right? He was like, yeah, because Hermione is like, that's not possible. Yeah, that's true. He kind of agrees that it's not possible. And so I think that there's sometimes something satisfying about something that was felt as though it was always going to be mysterious to you becoming clear. And I feel like another lesson that he's learning is that the memory of his dad can be enough of an inspiration. Yeah. And I am a big, big not believer in an afterlife, but I do profoundly believe that people who we've loved and lost still speak to us because we can still hear the things that they would say and that they would do, and we can stay in conversation with them. And so this is a way that his father is staying in conversation with him and saying, like, you don't need me. You can do these things yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think also I just maybe need to take your advice better that you gave a few minutes ago about sort of like, you know, you can tell yourself I've done this before or something very like it before, because I think maybe the reason why I wanted the story to go the way I misremembered it as going is because those things that I doubt that I can do, I want them to just happen. <laughs> and then we look back, <laughs> right? And then for me to look back and then be like, oh, without even being conscious, without even thinking, they happened and I didn't have to be courageous and I didn't have to make a decision and I didn't have to persuade myself, right? But actually what you need to do is be like, okay, this is something I've never done before and I have to do it for a first time. And it's going to take me just deciding that I'm going to try to do it, which is what Harry actually does in the scene. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Can we talk, if we're ready to move on, talk about one more instance of anticipation? One more. This is an implied instance of anticipation, but I thought it probably needs to be spoken of, which is Harry and Hermione see McNair leave the castle with a glint in his belt, right? So they know that he is going to summon the Dementors, and they know they don't have much time to get up to the tower and rescue Sirius. And there's a lot of action, and the action in this chapter, and the action is told from the perspective of Harry and Hermione, and we're on Buckbeak's back, and we're flying up to the tower, and it's all very exciting, and it takes them a few minutes to do that. But I think it's probably worthwhile also, just as readers, to like be in Flitwick's office with Sirius, because that's anticipation. I mean, whatever else anticipation means, good or bad, action, not action, we've circled around a lot of definitions. But having the executioner walk out to go get the Dementors and knowing that they're coming for you 
and not having any reason to believe that two children are flying up with a hippogriff to carry you into a different future. Like, whatever anticipation means, it's that, and it's, that's, that's, it's terrifying. I mean, what a terrifying way to spend any amount of time in those few moments. Yeah, that, that is the kind of anticipation that breaks a person, right? We, what we were talking about last was a kind of anticipation that teaches you who you are, right? And that you realize that you are in control of your own narrative in a way that you never thought. And this is the opposite. This is the realization that you actually have no control over your own narrative and there's nothing to do, right? Like, but wait with anxiety. It's the waiting with anxiety and the helplessness of knowing there's actually nothing to hold on to. Yeah, and I'm really grateful that you pointed us toward it because we know the moments of the exam coming (laughs) no matter what we do and, right? We we all know those moments too. We also know that this is a actual circumstance going on this moment in the world, in the states of this country, right? Like folks are going through these moments, even though the time scale might not be a few minutes from now. They they have a right. certain conclusion, and yeah, we know that that's happening on death row, and we also know that there are people right in in hospitals and hospices in hospitals, yep. Yep. right, that are just waiting for when waiting for when, and they know that it's coming, and that they have to figure out how to spend that time well. Vanessa, now it's time for our spiritual practice this week, and we are doing pardes. Yeah, we are. The practice of Jewish scriptural interpretation, and I'm going to lead this week. So the sentence we selected for this week is this. Looks even worse from here, doesn't it? Said Harry, watching the dog pulling Ron into the roots. The first step of pardes, Vanessa, is peshat, which is sort of the literal or surface meaning of the sentence. So could you tell us? What's the meaning of the sentence? What's going on and what is being directly or literally communicated to us as readers? So Harry and Hermione are time traveled back and they are watching themselves get chased by Sirius into the Whomping Willow. They're they're watching Ron get dragged by Sirius into the Whomping Willow and into the Shrieking Shack. And they are watching themselves chase Ron and Sirius and get hit by the Whomping Willow. And they are observing that watching it happen to them is worse than when it was happening to them. Yeah. Which I just think is a really interesting idea. And I'm curious as to whether or not it's true. I mean, I think sometimes it can be worse, right? I don't know about this particular case, but often when we suffer bad things, in the wake of that, the memory of that bad thing can can actually amplify the experience of it in our psyche and cause us to relive it and to be more anxious about it and to be more anxious about circumstances similar to it, right? This is this is how trauma manifests in folks who have suffered bad things or suffered difficult things or gone through extreme suffering, right? But one of the difficult things about trauma for those who research it is that I don't think we know why some experiences are ones that don't become re-triggered in our psyche, right? That don't resurface for us, why we are able to just have a bad experience and then that bad experience becomes kind of cordoned off in memory and moved away from versus the kind of experience that rises again and resurfaces and re-traumatizes us again and again, right? And so, you know, I'm not trying to say that what's going on with the Whomping Willow and 
Harry and her mind in the situation is or is not like, you know, a case of trauma in the strict sense. But I think there is something about something true about the idea that reliving something bad that happened over and over again can have a longstanding and destructive effect upon a person who is forced to remember and relive that experience again and again. Right. It, it, it's part of what's so interesting about it to me is I wonder if this memory is actually going to be what they remember and what is upsetting yeah. is that they would have totally forgotten about this moment, except that now they have to watch it. It's going to become somehow ingrained in their memory. Vanessa, the next step in Pardis is remez, which means hint. And so what we're going to do is choose a word and we're going to try to track that word through the scene, through this chapter, through this book, through the series. So I'm going to read the sentence again, and then why don't you select a word for us, and we'll think about, about how it tracks. Looks even worse from here, doesn't it? said Harry, watching the dog pulling Ron into the roots. I would like to pick the word worse. Worse? Okay. Mm -hmm. It's just something that I've noticed in my chaplaincy recently, is that people will minimize their own suffering by saying other people have it worse. And I'm, it's something that I'm really interested in the productivity of. I think like acknowledging our privilege is really productive. And I think that being grateful is productive, but I'm not sure if minimizing our suffering is. So I'm interested in this idea lately. So I think let's... Let's think about worse. Let's look in the books. Like, I think one of the reasons that Harry wants to move to Sirius's house is not that he loves Sirius. He just knows that the Dursleys is going to be worse. Yeah. It's throughout the series, right? Because because in the imperfect world that these children live through, like, they have no ideal scenarios. They're always making decisions about, among the bad options we have, what's the one that seems most likely to be one that we can live with, right? Which which is worse and which is the worst, right? And that that goes right up to the to the final scenes of book seven. When the decisions that are made there are not the best ones, even Harry's decision in King's Cross is not about like what he wants or what would be ideal. It's about, okay, what would be worse right now for me to do this or that and trying to choose the better thing rather than the worst thing. Yeah. And that, just because you put me in the frame of mind of book seven, sometimes the decision is the worst decision, but you do it anyway because you can't control it, hmm. right? I'm thinking about Ron screaming for Hermione in book seven yeah. when she's upstairs at Malfoy Manor. And I think that there's something really beautiful about him screaming, even though it's futile. Yeah. But arguably, it, it's drawing attention to himself, it, right? Like it's not, it's not anticipatory, it's not productive. It might be the worst decision, and it just doesn't matter. Like, you have to do the worst thing because yeah. your body, to use Jane Eyre language, is like rising in mutiny against the situation, right? Like, you just have to do the worst thing. Yeah. I mean, and that's also Luna's dad, right? Xenophilius. He hates turning in Harry, but right. it's much worse to do nothing to save his daughter. Worse so for him, right? Choosing, yeah. yeah, for him. As a parent, you do anything. Okay, Vanessa, our third step in Pardis is drush. And drush is where we imagine what sermon we would preach on this line. So you get to go first. What sermon would you preach on this line? I would preach the sermon that was written for me in the fantastic movie Frozen 2. And Matt, I know that this is a moment in Frozen 2 that meant a lot to you as well, which is do the next right thing. 
that rather than trying to have the frame of mind of doing the least worst thing, trying to do the next right thing is what I think I would preach on. And sometimes it's not possible, right? Like sometimes you can only do the less worst thing. But I think whenever we can shift from the least worst thing to the next right thing, we should try. I mean, I think what you're saying is that the right thing sometimes is the least worst thing. And just thinking about it as <laughs> yes. the best thing you can do is the better way to think about it. Because then you're just, you're not focusing on where you failed. You're focusing on what you can do, right? Yeah. Great sermon. And it's something that I see people, <laughs> it's something that people do a lot, right? Like they blame themselves for things that really weren't their fault, right? It's like, oh, I should have known to call one more time. Then they would have left two minutes later and they wouldn't have gotten into that car accident. And it's like, no, what's horrible is that they got into a car. Like you didn't do anything wrong, yeah. right? And so I, I want people to be invited into forgiving themselves and seeing that what they did was the next right thing. Yeah. So thank you for helping me get there. What about you, Matt? What would your sermon be? I think I'd probably preach something about bystanding, right? That mm-hmm. What's going on in this line, this particular line, is they're watching something happen to themselves, right? And talking about the the pain of witnessing something like this. Now, the unique and magical circumstances of this line give rise to some meanings that have to do with watching oneself suffer. And we've already talked about those, especially in in Peshat. But I would think about there is, we live in a world where it's really easy to see the sufferings of others on our phones and online. And we just, information makes all this, these images really readily available to us. And I think as is natural for humans with a capacity for empathy, we we see this kind of suffering. We want to do something. We want to think about how to how to take action. And you know, the children take action in this chapter, but they don't take every action they could take. And there are some actions they shouldn't take and other actions that they have to take, And the, right? And it's a it's a constant discernment and deliberation, and it's not a straightforward thing. And it leads to exactly what you were saying, which is often you have to do the next right thing, not everything you might want to do or hope you could do. But that witnessing it does really mean that there is some kind of obligation involved and it's the discernment, which is the tricky part. So I think that's probably what I would preach upon. So Vanessa, the final step of Pardis is... Sod, which is the secret. What's the secret of this line, Vanessa? (laughs) Can you share it with us? We won't tell anyone. The secret to me is that Ron would disagree with this, right? Ron, who was actually being the one who was being dragged in to the Whomping Willow and his leg was being broken. He is unconscious up in Hogwarts Castle, right? He is not able to witness this. And so I'm I'm curious as to what Ron's experience would be if he was there. And I'm if I was there, <laughs> if I was Ron, I'd be like, yeah, it hurt that much. There's something satisfying about the knowledge to me. There's something satisfying to me about the knowledge that something that felt really bad was bad. <laughs> I'm like, it felt horrible. Hmm. It was horrible, right? And so I can imagine Ron being like, yep, yep. Oh, it felt like it. It felt like that. I just think that this moment might have been cathartic for Ron versus upsetting for Harry and Hermione. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, what I thought of when you spoke about Ron being absent was sort of just the dynamics of their friendship, the three of them, right? I mean, in in the first two books, the three of them encounter these bad situations, but really it's Harry on his own at the end against some version of Voldemort, right? 
Mm-hmm. And in, in this book, it's the three of them. And there's, again, this kind of separation. But Ron is separated out. And it's Harry and Hermione together. And there's something important about the friendship between Harry and Hermione, which happens in this book, right? And that carries forward throughout the rest of the series and makes us able to understand the trio, not just as a trio, but also as individuals who have friendships internal to the group, right? I mean, this is going to be very clear later on when Ron and Hermione, you know, fall in love and develop their own relationship within the context of the three-person group. But this is the first time where we see Harry and Hermione as friends without Ron in the mix, I think, in a significant way in the series. And their working relationship, the way they work together in this, is actually, it's foreshadowing stuff that will happen later. You know, we've already talked about book seven. In book seven, when it is just Harry and Hermione again on their own for a significant portion of that adventure. So I think there's a little bit of secrecy there. There's a little hint of something to come there. What is your sode? I think the secret here for me is just sort of, there's so much structural in and around the Wizarding World and Hogwarts that leads to suffering and violence and difficulty for so many different characters, right? Like, Whomping Willow was there for a reason. The Whomping Willow was there to, to protect everyone from this student, Remus Lupin, right? You know, who, who they wanted to admit to the school, but a bunch of prejudices against werewolves, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. prevented it. And so they had to go to these extreme measures. And, like, I don't know, it's just it's the, the lengths we go to protect the systems of privilege and preference that we have, they bear out as injury and violence, not just to those we're trying to exclude, but also to pure-blood wizards who are from long-standing wizarding families <laughs> like like Ron, right? I mean, the, the Whomping Willow's dangerous, and this danger was put on campus in order to hide Lupin's identity, but he couldn't be brought in in a more direct and safe way because they had to hide his his werewolf identity. So all these yeah. things just work together to lead through a bunch of more danger for everybody, rather than everybody just kind of addressing the situation directly and in a safer and, and better way. So the kind of the secret thing is just like violence towards others often bears out as violence towards towards many. Yeah, and I I love that secret also in in context of the other things we were talking about in this conversation about I'm sure like Lupin blames himself for Ron's injury, right? Yeah. And it's like, no, it wasn't your fault. It's the structural oppression, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Whomping Willow is such a good example of that. Thanks, Matt. You did such a great job with Pardace. That was so fun. Thanks, Vanessa. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's voicemail is from Anne. Hi, Matt, Vanessa, and the whole HPST team. I am calling in with a blessing and a question. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about Lupin over the last few episodes that you've discussed as we see him really supporting Harry very much, you know, helping him with his Patronus and um, explaining to him why the Dementors affect him so badly. But we still see him in the role of a teacher or a mentor figure. And we know, having read the books before, that um, that wasn't how he originally related to Harry. Originally, for Harry's first year of life, I think he would have been much more of an uncle figure, a family friend. I'm sure he was over at James and Lily's house all the time. And if James and Lily hadn't been killed, I think that would have continued. He would have been a core part of Harry's family, watching him grow up, a you know, really big part of his childhood. And when he and Harry are reintroduced in this book, he obviously makes a choice to not tell Harry about that connection they have and not tell Harry about his relationship with James and Sirius. And um, my question for you all, my Haruta, is whether that's a good choice on his part. Um, I think it's not a good choice. Um, as someone who has lost a parent, I think the gift to Harry of being in relationship with Lupin where he could talk about what his parents were like and have stories told about that first year of life that he doesn't remember would be an extraordinary blessing. And, you know, um, Lupin doesn't give that to him. Um, so I think it was a wrong choice. But it seems clear to me that it was a choice made out of love and probably a choice that is hard for Lupin as well to not have a relationship with Harry the way he would have to feel disconnected from one of the few sort of family members that he has left as well. And so even though I disagree with Lupin's choice, I want to give a blessing to him for doing something very difficult for him and that he does out of love for Harry. And thanks for your voice memo uh, and for sharing your own story of, of losing a parent and using it to think through what's going on with Harry here. I'm sorry that you've you've lost a parent. I think you're right. I, Lupin's such a complicated figure, I think emotionally and morally so complicated for so many reasons, not because he's a werewolf, but because of so many other things. And one thing that I really discerned in this book is I feel like there's a there's a ton of guilt among the survivors of this Wizarding War, and especially those who were close to James and Lily, because there is a sense that James and Lily were let down in this fundamental way. I mean, I think for most of this novel, Lupin thinks it's because he trusted Sirius when he shouldn't have. He finds out later in the novel it's because he trusted Peter when he shouldn't have. But either way, I think everyone takes this personally. And I think 
I think you're right. I think that he's making his decisions. I think that is probably the wrong decision. I think he's making decisions for the wrong reasons. But I also don't want to underestimate the degree to which personal guilt, a feeling of shame or guilt might be causing him to make wrong decisions. He probably feels like he let Harry down too, that it probably is hard for him to feel like he can be this uncle figure to Harry because if he had been better, maybe that things wouldn't have happened. Again, these are not justifications for these bad decisions, just maybe reasons for them. I'm really grateful for you and for your voice memo because it draws attention to that decision, that it is a decision and that it's probably the wrong one. And then it does make things harder for Harry than it needs to be. And as, you know, as much as we might admire some of what Lupin does in this book and later on to support the kids, this is one thing he could have been doing the, the whole time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anne. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Sarah Ashokan, who was 26, a daughter, sister, beloved friend, and owner of a dog. We miss her every day. Dr. Ajay Loda, a gifted physician who served on the front line of the COVID-19 epidemic, a father and husband. Hank Bird was 83, a father, grandfather, and creative woodworker. Juan, who is 85, most loving and intelligent grandfather. Auntie Gail was 74, a Mexican-trained Domino's champion. Jordan Meskin, who was 25 and a shining light. Go Team Jordan. Carol Bagby, who is 86 and a mother of four, a nurse and a joy. Joy Floyd, known as Mop was 88, a grandmother, mother, collage artist, and lover of frosting. Salvatore Vito Picciuto, who was 98, a father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. Hessel DeYoung, who was 87, and never let anything stop him from helping others. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, who would you like to bless this week? I have two quick blessings. First, I'd like to bless Madame Pomfrey because, you know, Madame Pomfrey is kind of a comic character in these novels. She's always kind of impatient. She's trying to get everyone out of the hospital wing and everyone's always crowding into the hospital wing. And it just occurred to me that, like, maybe more than any adult in Hogwarts Castle, her primary concern is always just like welfare of the children, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, let's. Just, I don't care what else is going on. This child is sick and yeah. needs my care. Get out of here. I don't care if you're the headmaster. I don't care who you are. I don't care what other drama is going on in the Wizarding War. I don't care, care the if you're the Minister of Magic. That's right. I love it, right? It's not. I, so just like that, it seems like maybe the only one with like the right priorities at Hogwarts is maybe Madame Pomfrey. So that's a, a blessing for her. I also wanted to quickly bless Hagrid because we have a very quick glimpse of him in this chapter. When Harry and Hermione go back in time and he has he knows that Buckbeak is free. 
And he's a little bit tipsy because he's celebrating. And the thing that I love about it is that, like, he also knows he's never going to see Buckbeak again. Like, mm-hmm. this this could be a sad moment for, for Haggard, <laughs> but he just loves Buckbeak so much. The fact that he's never going to see him again is good news because that means he's safe. And that that is something he can celebrate without any sadness, although I know it breaks his heart a little bit. Just, I wanted to bless Haggard for that. Vanessa, who are you blessing? Yeah. He gives Buckbeak the credit. He's like, yeah. bless his heart. He escaped. I'm That's like, right. Yes, Uh I want to bless Sirius. I'd like to think that Dumbledore told Sirius, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. But we know that Dumbledore stays quite enigmatic a lot of the times when he communicates. And so just these hours in a tower of panicking that something's going to happen to you that you don't deserve. I just want to bless anyone who's feeling as though they can't change their fate, even though they desperately want to. Matt, next week we are finishing the book, book three, chapter 22. And so you will be telling us a story on the theme of love because we always end with love. It's always love for the last chapter. Great. Can't wait. It's my favorite kind of story. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Aramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong, and our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. We want to thank Anne for her blessing this week, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Twenty-one. I'm going to do the whole episode in this voice. Chapter 21, Hermione's Secret.